I'm Christina Young and you're back with Gloucester Book Club's podcast and in tonight's episode I'll be talking with James and Joe about Lean Fall Stand by John McGregor, the highly anticipated new novel. When an Antarctic research expedition goes wrong, the consequences are far-reaching for the men involved and for their families back home. Robert Doc Wright, a veteran of Antarctic fieldwork, holds the clues to what happened, but he is no longer able to communicate them, while Anna, his wife, navigates the sharp contours of her new life as a carer Robert is forced to learn a whole new way to be in the world. Award-winning novelist John McGregor returns with a stunning novel that mesmerisingly and tenderly unpicks the notion of heroism and explores the indomitable human impulse to tell our stories, even when words fail us. A meditation on the line between sacrifice and selfishness This is a story of the undervalued, unrecognised courage it can take just to get through the day. Just to forewarn you, before you dive into our discussion, there may be one or two spoilers. I'm here tonight with James and Joe, and we're going to talk about Lean Fall Stand. In our book club discussions over the last month, We've really had quite polarised opinions about this book. And I'm going to talk to both of you about what you thought about the book as a whole. James, you're new to the podcast. Welcome. Listeners won't have heard your voice before. (laughs) It's nice to have you. Would you like to tell us what you thought about this book? It gives the impression that it's going to be a polar adventure. And one finds out after the first third of the book that nothing could be further from the truth. It certainly isn't about a polar adventure, even though that starts off. And that really is the way the book develops. It seems that every, you know, every single expectation, every single point that you reach when you think, oh yes, I know what this is about. I know what's going to happen. You shouldn't think that because the complete opposite virtually happens in every case. And um, I I think he, he likes to do that. The thing that surprised me most about the book was that most books, uh, there's a kind of main character who becomes a kind of a hero to you and you, you see the world through their eyes and you know what they're thinking and you know what they want and you know what will make a happy ending for them and you begin striving for that. He doesn't write in that way. He doesn't sort of go inside somebody's head. He writes in a way that you're literally looking at four people moving across a landscape which you know very little about. And all you find out about them is the way that they interact with each other, which you only see as a third person. And so to me, it was very much like a kind of a fly on the wall documentary. I thought at the time, it's what happens is they come back from the Antarctic and one of the guys suffers a stroke. And the book is about his recovery or non-recovery or whatever happens. And I think the, the author was trying very hard to make this experience that this guy had when he had a stroke more real 
by doing it in this fly fly on the wall way so that you don't you're not inside his head you don't build things up in your mind you're just passively watching him struggle with his condition and of course the people with him struggle struggling with his condition personally it didn't really tick all my boxes uh, you know i think i'm a bit of a traditionalist and i quite like to be entertained by a book um, but at the same time, it was a masterful work and a pretty good thing to discuss, really, because there are so many surprises and twists and turns and non-conventional things that it's, it's you know, it's, it's a good book. Interesting. You should talk about how it's like a fly on the wall kind of documentary reading this book, because we have read John McGregor's, a, a book of John McGregor before, haven't we, a few years ago, and I can see that he was doing a similar thing in that. We read Reservoir 13. Did you find that, Joe? Do you think he was doing a similar thing where he was kind yeah, of looking down? Exactly. Reservoir 13 is written almost as if by a hawk flying above the village, seeing the life of the village and, and in bird language, telling the story of all the people, or bird's eye yeah. view, as it were. And that, that fits with James's um, idea of the fly on the wall. I, I agree. I think that, that is how it's written. Yeah, it, it fits in if that's what he does. He's obviously not somebody who believes in great literary sentences and wonderful flowery language and um, evocative scenes that get you excited by the language. He's he's obviously somebody who feels that that actually gets in the way of storytelling or something, mm -hmm. which is quite an admirable mm -hmm. thing to the starting point or whatever, because I'm, I'm sure he can write if he wants to, but it's more like an instruction book, the way he writes. Uh, what did you think about the book and the story itself, Joe? I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very cleverly written and very well observed, written in a very human way. I felt it was a, an absolutely spot on description of the muddle and confused thinking and the physical clum clumsiness that you suffer when you do have a stroke. So it's almost as if John McGregor has had a stroke himself or a member of his family has. So he clearly researched very well what it's like. And some of the early description of Robert's the early stages of his stroke was absolutely spot on. And mm -hmm. also in relation to the um, long haul hard work aspect of his recovery and the impact of the stroke on um, his wife and family and, and his, his gallivanting in the South Antarctic pre-stroke, mm. certainly now post-stroke when he needs to be cared for. What do you think Robert was like as a person? What was, what was he like before his stroke? I think he was, uh, well, what we learn about his character, because of the way I, I said it's fly on the wall, is not very much. We, we learn mm. that in the Antarctic, he's been going for a very, very long time at exactly the same level of job. And there doesn't seem to have been any career progression. And he's probably in his 50s. We also know that he likes to do things his own way. The uh, One of the other guys suggests that... Um, he, he relaxes some of the rules because he's obviously the guy in charge of these three people. He doesn't mind how much they drink. He doesn't mind if they want to take a photograph and uh, he's going to climb up a mountain just so that he can give some scale to the photograph. And we know that that isn't really following regulations. We also find out that he doesn't like to use modern communication systems, presumably because he's one of these people who in the past, everything worked the way it worked when he joined the company. So I'm not doing with these new fancy fangled phones or whatever he's thinking. And so I suppose you'd say he's a little bit full of himself. He's a little bit in love with himself. Um, he doesn't necessarily listen to other people a great deal. 
and that's I don't know it's difficult really the John McGregor's writing to analyze someone's character because you don't get that many clues but um mm. he's a flawed person for sure don't like him I'm not sure about that um I would say he was an anachronism and he regarded himself he liked to regard himself as a bit of a maverick I think he kind of reveled in his rebelliousness if you like or his his, his failure to follow the rules exactly he was certainly a man out of time so anachronism I felt really that he was quite a selfish chap, very high self-regard. I felt that his um, attitude to Anna, his wife and his family in continuing with this gallivanting in the Antarctic into middle age, which I would guess for most of them, they wouldn't do. They would normally at a younger age move sideways into a, into a, a desk job or a more managerial position and not have to be away for four months of the year, which is quite a, quite a thing for her to have to accept even though it suited her to pursue her career. It did, it, it did suit her though, didn't it? Because, you know, it's it's quoted in the book that she actually, part of the reason why she married him was because she knew he would be away for four months of the year. And, and her friend Bridget actually asks her that when she says, so essentially you're going to marry him on the basis that he won't be around much. Mm. And she says, yes, Bridget, that's absolutely correct. You know, so I think it suited them both for him not to be around all the time and actually if he was away four months um he was actually back in his home for eight months so he was he was around sort of two-thirds of the time wasn't he which is still quite a chunk I wouldn't necessarily I think that's the sort of guy he was I think she knew that when she married him and I think she was attracted by that and I think I don't I, don't, I wouldn't blame him for it at all I think he you know, he was a a guy who loved being in the Antarctic. He loved the landscape. He liked being a bit of a loner out there. He liked being in charge of things. I think it suited him really well. And I, I would, I, I didn't know whether I liked him or disliked him. I don't have any very strong feelings about him, but I don't, I don't blame him for what he did as a living. I don't know. I mean, I suppose. There is a fatality in the book, um, and one is led to believe that it was his own lapses in in following the regulations that directly caused this fatality. Um, and usually, when in a novel or a film, when somebody does something bad, like if somebody robs a bank and kills the cashier, you kind of know that they're going to get their comeuppance and you're mm -hmm. not really supposed to like them, you know? And so in that context, he is a character a little bit like that because he has this, um, this stroke, um, it, that all fizzles away and nothing much happens about mm -hmm. it. So I'm not sure if we are supposed to like him as far as the author is concerned. I, I, I mean, I don't know, but then this is a book where nothing follows the, the, the normal pattern and the, mm. the, the person that robs the bank doesn't end up going to jail as, as you're expecting them to or whatever. I could see uh, he's he's a well written well written character. I could see elements of myself in him, you know. I mean, um, and he had his his flaws. And yes, you're right. His marriage probably worked because he spent half his life in the Antarctic, and they didn't have time to have any arguments or whatever. But like I said, this is a fly on the wall book. I don't think you can expect to to like or dislike any of the characters the, the way that John McGregor writes. You don't get inside their heads. And it's a good so, thing to do, you know, because you do lift yourself away from these emotional attachments to characters 
And so someone who's going through this terrible aphasia and being completely unable to speak, you don't really feel sorry for them in the way that you would if they were the main character. You're just observing what's going on. And because of that, all the people around them become just as interesting as the main character and the way that they're handling the situation. So it's masterful fiction in a way, but um, not very engaging and you don't really end up liking anybody. Is the book more about, just as much about Anna's struggles to come to terms with becoming his carer as it is about Robert? Because how difficult was it going to be for her to adjust to having Robert around full time because she hadn't had that for 30 years. And do you think that was going to work for them? Do you see them finding their way through that and coming to a point where they could both be okay with it? What about you, Joe? What do you think? Again, I, I think it, to, to some extent it's going to depend on whether he will have the support of medical early retirement, which will provide the funds hopefully to bring in uh, professional care so that she can resume her career, which is in the balance as the book ends. I mean, I wouldn't like to think that their marriage would, would fall asunder. I wouldn't like to think that she would be deprived of her career either. It would require some external care to free her to go back to work, basically. She's got quite a good career going on, hasn't she, in fact? And she's having to come out of her workplace to look after him. She's got a PhD or whatever, you know, in climate change, she's going to be saving the world. So her career is pretty full on. Mm. But it looks like, you know, she may have to take some time out of that. And I really worried about that. I hoped that she was going to get back into it at some point as um, a climate scientist. And... You know, I, I thought that maybe, you know, if Robert improves somewhat and but if, if he still needs care, that they'd be able to employ somebody to go in and look after him during the daytime and she'd be able to go back to work. I think that you are sympathising with the wife because you're kind of putting yourself in that position. And I'm not sure that there was a lot of evidence in the book that she was really struggling. You know, I mean, I, sure, she was getting frustrated and wasn't able to do her job. But at the same time, we didn't actually hear that that was any kind of a problem to her. We, we never heard that there was any money problems. We never heard that, it, you know, all she had to do really was to take him to this class for the last third of the book. And this is, again, to me, illustrates why the book's so interestingly written is because you do find yourself identifying with certain things and and building on those ideas in your own mind without the book actually supporting what you're thinking. I did that of times as well. I thought though there were some bits in the book where it mentions that she she's wondering not just if she can do it but if she wants to do it you know yes. wants to take a caring role. Right. I think right back at the beginning of her life with him I'm not even sure that family was part of her plan I mean it came along yes and she had children but I'm, I'm not absolutely sure that she wanted that um, I think she wanted to get married and she could do her own work and she could build her own life and she could have her own prestige. But I'm not sure she, at that point anyway, you ever think about whether you're signing up to be the person that you've married, end up being their carer, do you? And whether or not that's something that you can take on. Last point you made is, is a very important point for a book club who was going to read this book to discuss. And we discussed it in most of our meetings that do you as a on the commitment to care for your partner and if they are um if they have a stroke or a heart attack or something like that are you necessarily going to be their carer at home 
and give up mm. her job for that. Now, that's a difficult thing for her to do because she's a successful academic. In a way, you could say, why should she? But um, she does say at one point, doesn't she, that, uh, or thinks to herself, she wasn't sure she wanted to be a carer. She didn't even know she really wanted to be a wife. Do you think if it was the other way around and she had had the stroke, could you see Robert becoming her carer? I don't know about that. I don't think Robert was quite cut out for that sort of thing. Unfortunately, I'm not. I can't. I can't make my mind up about it. What do you think, James? I don't see why not. I mean, um, he wouldn't. She wasn't there when it happened to him. She had to come flying halfway around the world, and the same mm. might have happened. I mean, it was his house as well where they lived. Um, and he, in no way, was he a, a vindictive man or a selfish man in that way. I mean, he was. He was perfectly affable to the two lads he started the book with. But no, obviously, um, one would find it harder to believe that a man would look after a woman than, than a man than a woman look after a man. And I don't know if that's some societally cultivated norm that I've got. But um, yeah, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure if he would have done the same thing. Let's talk a little bit about the support group. <laughs> I would struggle, I think, to accept. And certainly Anna and Robert had their struggles to accept that support group at the beginning and Robert walked out of it, didn't he, a couple of times. Would they, would it be would it be easy, I think, you know, to go into that kind of situation where you've got people who have had similar who have similar problems, he had aphasia, finding it really difficult to communicate what you wanted to say. I think I would really struggle with a support group. I don't know what you guys thought about it. I think I, I, I don't know whether I would have gone to something like that, uh, an unconventional type of support group um, with all this um, movement therapy and what have you. But nevertheless, mm. having when you read what happens to them and the end result, um, you've got to admit that it does seem to have been successful in bringing them out of their shells and helping them to establish a sort of a confidence to negotiate, mm. communicating in strange ways. And find their way in the world. Robert goes from the stage where he walks out of the first or second meeting in, in high dungeon and by the time of the third or fourth one he gets there under his own steam without Anna and that's evidence yeah. of an improvement isn't it? Would a support group be for you James? I, I, I honestly I wouldn't like to personalise this it, what would I like to go to a support group if I had a stroke it would be like bringing on the possibility that I might have a stroke. But um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, the point is that he describes the thing wonderfully. And, um, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, as I keep saying, like a fly on the wall documentary, we, the room is there, the, 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 the girl who's asking all the questions is there, people shuffle in, move their chairs around, sit down. You can, you can imagine the whole atmosphere. And then she says something completely inane, like, how has your week been? to the people, you know, mm. and and, um, and then struggles to get an answer out of somebody and then says, how has your week been to the next one? And you can kind of imagine two hours going by just with those questions being answered by 12 people. And you think, well, where would that get anybody? You know, and I, I, I mean, I know people who've been in this situation um, with, with stroke victims, and I know the kind of meetings that they've been invited to come along to and I know the reaction to those meetings is usually very negative um, mm. I mean I suppose the answer is that 
anything that gets you out of the house and uh, doing anything and trying to listen to other people and talk is good for you, isn't it, in a situation like that? And if you haven't got any contact of any kind, then those meetings would be wonderful. Um, but I'm sure you could think of some better way to bring yourself around into the world if you had, you know, loads of opportunities. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd, I'd go to them and see how it went is the answer. I'm sure you would too. Yeah. What do you think? I might give it a go. I might go once or twice and then, you know, see. I don't I don't think it's something that fits with me comfortably. No. Um, but it, I wouldn't necessarily say I wouldn't go along. I, I would give, I'd give it a go, I think. Yeah. I suppose the whole book raises important questions for the readers, doesn't it? Because it we've all got to think about what will happen to us, what could happen to us in the future as we age. Um, something we've got to face, I suppose, at some point in our lives. Who am I? What can I stand? Who's going to be there for me when I fall? Um, is there going to be anybody there for me when I fall? And all of those sorts of things, I'm sure, go through a lot of people's minds as, as we all kind of go through our lives. Um, or maybe they don't. Maybe some people just don't want to think about it. So they, they block out those kinds of thoughts. And I can see why you would do that. Um, we'll see the, the future going for Robert and Anna. Well, like I said, I, I, I hope that they their financial position is such that they can get proper care in and that Anna can get back to work. So I think that's going to be essential for her happiness and for the um, survival of their marriage. If if she has to end up doing the care and can't go back to work, I would really worry about the state of their marriage. You know, I mean, I mean um, you, obviously um, he is never going to recover much more and um, she is going to be in a situation where she will continue to be responsible for him and um, may never be able to leave him out of her sight for more than 10 minutes at a time. It's quite possible. And I don't know, I, I did reach a point with the book where I felt like it was, it was making that seem a little bit too sad in a way, because there are so many other people who might be married to a severe alcoholic where the, the, the problem that they face married to this severe alcoholic is not necessarily one that society even recognises, like when you're married to someone who's had a stroke. And so, you know, we're given this situation where you feel sorry for them because of this terrible disaster that's happened. And yet there are so many people in exactly the same situation right now in Gloucester that it might mm -hmm. be almost better to, to find a way of agreeing that we, we just deal with things like this. And OK, maybe our life quality changes, but maybe there are ways in which life quality improves as well as diminishes i don't know yeah that's that's an interesting point to think about i think it, there's quite a large part it's probably the third section i think of the book where we're we're in the support groups scenes and there's an awful lot of kind of repetitive sort of dialogue coming through how people are speaking and so on so on did it give you an insight into the frustrations of living with aphasia and you know and also being that person who suddenly got this title carer thrust upon them when in fact, I mean, I struggle with that word. But want to be called a carer. Do you have any kind of thoughts about, you know, should we should people take on that title, really? Well, to be honest, I don't I haven't got a problem with the description carer. I mean, that is what you are in reality. And as to whether if I. <laughs> were married and my wife 
um, had a stroke and needed constant care, as it were. I, I would regard it as part of my marriage obligation to look after her. And in many ways, carer is a government label, isn't it? It's, um, it's like a, a, you declare yourself as a carer so that you can have all your national insurance contributions paid and uh, various other little things that are quite fair, the extra things you should get. And unless you label yourself as a carer, then, then you don't get any of that. So in mm. some ways it's not, but you, what you're saying is, would you like to be a carer? Mm. Well, mm. a lot of people like having dogs, you know, and uh, <laughs> they wouldn't for one minute think of themselves as a carer when they've got four Irish wolfhounds who they have to take walking every day or something. It feels to me is that if you are in a partnership with someone and you know you've been in that partnership for a long time and you've loved them and you you know you've had all sorts of family with them or, or whatever to suddenly kind of in a way have that role changed and then you suddenly take on a different title you know I would say I'm still their partner I'm still their wife I'm still their husband you know I'm still their friend and that's the first and foremost thing I still am it's almost like those bits get stripped away from you when you start having to look after someone and you have to take on that title carer you know it's like okay so I'm no longer the wife or the, or the husband or the partner then I am the carer you know yeah. uh, that feels difficult for me I I struggle I no, struggle that's with a very that. well-made point and I completely agree with you it's a disaster and um but I I do absolutely agree with what you're saying as well, James, about you have to, in a way, have that name in order to access carer's allowance or, you know, the benefits that, you know, government benefits that come with being a carer um, and also maybe support that you might access, you know, yeah. for being that person. Um, but have a, I am uncomfortable with the, with the actual title of it. Um, it's only one okay. E away from being a career, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really goes insert one E into it and it's a completely different. Um, so going forward, do you think this is a good book for book clubs to choose as their one of their monthly reads for discussion? Yes, I do. Um, you, you started it with the pun on the polar extremes that came out in our discussions. And it is a book which produces Polar, polar reactions from different people and uh, polarised reactions. And of course, that is what you want, really, in a book club. <laughs> it's, it's the way to start a good debate. Pretty good then, Joe. What about you, James? Well, we've had a pretty good discussion about it. I mean, really, uh, I think a book club book should be something which you can have a discussion about. It's not, whether you enjoy it or not is of secondary importance. And by that answer, you can tell that I didn't massively enjoy it. But, um, mm. I, you know, I read it all and I've enjoyed this discussion. And I think so. It must be a good book for a book club. Yes. Yeah. You listened to it, didn't you? An audio book. Yes. And did you find it was well narrated? Was that? You I did. I did listen to it all on audio and read bits. Um, it was very well narrated and particularly the um, patients in the support group who had a type of aphasia called fluent aphasia which means that they come out with a sort of a rambling poem, which is, is mm. nonsense, that they, they don't know what they're saying or what they're trying to say. It just comes out. Um, there was one chap who uh, came out with something very biblical about the end of the world almost, and another poor chap, young man, who couldn't stop swearing. 
had to keep apologizing, mm. spent half his time apologizing for, for, for the F word all the time. Um, mm. With the, the audible version, that was hilarious to me. It seemed a bit weird right. and inappropriate to be finding something like that funny because they, they were obviously um, blighted by the medical problem that they had. So I, mm. I definitely recommend people who who um, want to give it a go to give, have a go at the audible. Do you have any thoughts about it? Or? Well, the audio version, well, he read it very slowly. Um, he There were long pauses, and I'm never quite sure if that's... Um, if that's the right way to read an audiobook or not, um, but it's a bit of a contentious issue because, you know, if you try and put too, make too dramatic um, an input into the book from the narrator, isn't really fair on the author and it might take away from what the author originally intended. So uh, quite quirky. I mean, he, he, he obviously, well, obviously is the word I was just about to talk about actually, because, um, the guy himself who has the stroke, one does find out before he has the stroke that he tends to say obviously a lot. And then as soon as he's had the stroke, whenever anyone says, is your name Robert? Well, obviously. And um, he then says obviously about six times. And yeah. that the, the, the chap who reads the book has obviously worked um, with somebody who's suffered a stroke because he does that incredibly well. Um, okay. And, um, you know, it does add to it and you do get a very clear impression of what it must be like to have a stroke just from listening to the way that he does these responses. Hmm. Well, I didn't find it a book that disappointed particularly. I've got to admit, I didn't like it as much as I enjoyed his previous book that we read in book club, which was Reservoir 13. But it didn't disappoint me. It's the line between sacrifice, selfishness. And often the unrecognised courage that it can take just to get through a day. So it does raise some important questions. And I think it probably does um, give a really good book club discussion. So I would recommend it to anyone out there listening who would like to take this one back to their book club. Um, OK, guys, thank you very much for joining me this evening. Um, just to let you know that next month's podcast is going to be uh, talking about Violetta by Isabel Allende. Uh, James, thank you to Joe for joining us and um, see you again soon. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Gloucester Book Club's podcasts. You can find us on Spotify, Anchor FM, Google and Apple podcasts and many more. We look forward to having you join us again soon. 